Welcome to the AJP podcast, a podcast that discusses current events, relevant topics, and emerging issues in pharmacy. I'm your host, Carleen McMore, and together with my producer, Jared McMore, and the Australian Journal of Pharmacy, we are bringing you a podcast that draws on the opinions and expertise of pharmacists from all settings and experience levels, from those pharmacists who've already been a voice in the profession to those who've never had their voice heard before. This is the first episode in a series where our guests will share their practical tips, so pieces of advice that may come in handy or that you may not have heard of or encountered in your practice. Penny Wood advises that you should not expect to know everything. I do remember my, like my intern year being in Rochester Pharmacy and um, I had Brett Phillips and I, he was a great mentor. And I guess one of the things remember, is to remember that you can't know it all. Don't expect to know it all, but don't be afraid to look it up and don't be afraid to be honest to your patient. I think there's something wrong here. I can't quite remember, but I'm going to double check. And the patient actually appreciates that you're going to the effort to double check and make sure it's right. And I think sometimes some students and some pharmacists think they've got to know it all or they've got to guess, and that's more dangerous than admitting that you you don't. I suppose that's one bit of advice that I've probably taken and used my whole career. I think the other thing that's really important that I was trying to tell the students too is rapport building because you need that that trust. And I said, you know what? I talk about the weather about 100 times a day. You know, oh, it's cold out there, it's hot out there, or the footy, even if you don't like the footy. Oh, well, you know, those, especially because I work in Geelong, you know, oh, those cats, that was a bad game last night, or oh, that was a good win. And just that engagement before you even get to their health, their health needs, because it, it builds that trust. And I think, you know, if you're just coming in and saying, what do you need today, blah, 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 blah it's, you know, they go, Ugh. but if you, you have that engagement, they're willing to talk and give you more details. And yeah, it takes up a bit more time, but I also think that's really important. Renee Beardmore notes that a person is a person, not a health condition. It's kind of quasi-clinical. And it was reinforced in one of the talks that I went to this morning on addiction, pain addiction. And it's really important when you're dealing with a patient clinically for addiction that you see the whole person in front of you and that the addiction that they're dealing with is not usually, most often, not usually, it's not by choice. Their lives are chaos. So I think it's quasi-clinical because I say it's, it's as just as much important in their care to not judge, to talk to them openly and honestly, you know, have you used, you know, today you, look, you don't look quite right... And I've always had really open relationships with and conversations with patients in that regard. So I think it's really important to look at the whole patient, ask the questions and not judge because that's just as important as the dose that you're giving to that patient. Sam Kattenpah discusses how to treat methanol poisoning. I think the only one that always comes to mind with that is uh, that if someone's uh, suffering from acute methanol or propylene glycol poisoning, that the cure is actually ethanol. And we all know that, but uh, I actually looked it up and it works out that you need to maintain a BAC of at least 0.1 for that period, which works out to be five standard drinks for an 80 kilo adult. And I thought that was always quite good to know for whenever anyone goes over to Bali. Amin Mard notes the importance of developing a rapport with people. I think the best bit of advice I got was from a customer. I um, 
was taking out their script. This was as an intern. I said, oh, yeah, your script is ready, Mr. Jones. And he said, I'm not Mr. Jones. My dad is Mr. Jones. I'm Barry. Just call me Barry. Um, I think the crux of it was about developing that patient-practitioner patient relationship. Um, it, and I have actually told this to other interns I've had in the past as well. Um, it's, it's important that you get to see things from the patient's level. Um, it, it does help when trying to understand why somebody's having issues with compliance, whether that be due to the cost, usage, um, other factors as well. Um, and that empathy with the patient can be quite useful in actually helping them come up with a solution to their issue that is going to work for them. Catherine Duggan discusses the importance of being able to translate medicine's information into a language that people can understand. Sometimes we've got to be able to translate the use of medicines into language and sayings that parents and patients can really understand. You know, we, we have the list of 20 questions for the patient. They feel like they're in an exam, having a chat with a pharmacist. They can. I'm not saying they do, but they can. Um, whereas if we assimilate it and translate it into something that's pithy and, and at the edge of their fingertips, I think they, they will come to us for the expertise. We don't need to necessarily always tell them that we're a textbook full of facts. We can you know, translate it a bit better. And I do like that idea about being the translator. David Heffernan reveals the correct way to treat ticks. Well, there's got to, I guess there's a couple of things that... Uh, that I come across a lot where I am, and, and one of them is ticks. And there's a lot of bushland around where I am, and, and I'm not sure if people are aware of the cardiovascular risks of... of um, well, not just ticks, but scabies as well. So that's a mite, you know, of course, and... And um, and also in indigenous communities with regards to scabies, but um, but ticks especially. So I'll, I'll put it this way: one of the dumbest pieces of advice I ever saw was some idiot. I, I think it was on a Today Show or something. Came out and said, "Wart freeze is the best thing to put on a tick and take it out." Now. So and and people are coming all the time. It's just created all this buzz where obviously people have saw the show and, and people are talking about it and they tell yeah get wolf freeze, and to the point where every time people are buying wolf freeze now I go you want that for tick, and I have to stop them because I, I got this it's happened twice. One this young girl they put wolf freeze on it just caused this massive blister on this little girl's head, and which got quite infected and it was just. Really bad, so that was the first one. The other one, similar thing, on a child just got infected on just under their armpit, and they used now, you know, it's not, it's not painless wart freeze, and it's not. So, so I have for a long time, you know, looked into the ticks. I looked up through the Department of um, Epidemiology. I think what was it? The, what's it? It's anyway. It's a Sydney Uni where they study ticks and such, and the, you've got a couple of options with them, but the best thing to do if you get a tick 
is to knock it dead with a narcotic that works quickly. And the pyrethrin narcotics work very well. And so, and, and probably the best one is to get some likely and put it on. Just wait, and then the tick will release its grip. It'll kill it straight away, so it won't inject saliva in you, so you're less likely to get an allergic reaction to it. And then it'll just pull off and it'll be all over. And you can keep that in there, and that'll work for dogs and other things too. But, of course, as a good pharmacist, I would recommend take your dog to the vet. But, you know. um, so, and and pyrethrin comes from a natural plant as well. So it's, you know... That's one that I sort of had to study because I kept getting these tick bites in, you know, and I thought, yeah, here's your thing, pull them out and that, but it was something I didn't see at university. So when you, you sort of, it's funny when you move to an area and then you get a lot of these, one of the same thing. So so that was that was one, but but it, I thought I'd share my dumbest piece of clinical advice in it as well. People put methylated spirits on it, ticks. You don't do that either because that doesn't kill it, it stirs it up. It stirs them up. And you don't put Vaseline on it because they start to suffocate and it stirs them up. So, so those things, so, so that's the whole point of putting the pyrethrin on because it kills it, stops it straight away. It's the safest way. It might be a bit more costly because what's, you know, you're talking about $16 a tube or something. Yeah, so, but you keep it in your cupboard. It'll last for a fair while. Felicity Huxhagen points out that people want you to listen to them far more than they want you to solve them. Probably would have been from a very um, a very senior pharmacist um, that used to work with um, a fantastic little Aboriginal community in Central Western Australia that I cannot pronounce and will not try and pronounce. Um, his best advice to me was, camp dogs will eat anything. If someone tells you their dog has eaten their medications, the easiest thing you can do is just believe them and go on from there. Um, he also taught me that when a patient comes to you, they don't always want you to fix their problem. They want you to listen to them and not quite sympathise with them, but empathise at the end of the day. If your patient doesn't think that you're going to do everything in your power to get them through what may be a short-term illness or a chronic illness or the illness of a family member... If they don't think you're, you're on their team, they're going to shut down. They're not going to take your advice and they're probably either going to get worse or you'll just never see them again. Um, that was probably the best thing I've ever learned in pharmacy, that and never upset your dispensary technician because they make your coffee and you don't know what they're going to do to it. Graeme Smith describes the importance of knowing that things are not always as they seem in clinical practice. Probably the biggest thing I've become aware of and and my cultural competence training in New Zealand reinforced it to me is that sometimes things are not always as they seem and that you actually have to put yourself in the patient's shoes. And and the the classic example that I like to quote um, concerns a medicines use review I did on, on a Maori lady at her home um, on the traditional Marae, the Maori village, eight k's out of town. And I had been sent to convince her to take warfarin because she'd had a pulmonary embolism. She had other comorbidities, COPD, diabetes. But gradually it became obvious to me that because of her cultural beliefs, she was actually 
ready to meet her ancestors and that the warfarin and the bleeds that were occurring with, with, because of interactions with her traditional foodstuffs were ru- ruining her quality of life. And having been sent there to convince her to take the warfarin, what I actually did was went back to her GP and said, just take her off it. If you want, if you want to give her something, give her low-dose aspirin, which may actually may or may not do anything other than appease your conscience. But this is interfering with her quality of life. So things were not as they seem. You've always got to put yourself in the patient's shoes. That's that. I think uh, that's probably it's clinical or just patient patient care. Well, th- this this particular lady died about eighteen months later from pneumonia, and when her daughter returned her unwanted medicines, she, she sought me out and and said, "You have no idea." how pleased my mother was with that little intervention you made that meant she didn't have to get people to drive her into town almost once a week for blood tests. It made a big difference to her. Well, with, with interactions, it's really about risk assessment. And you look at what the, what the likely risk from the interaction is and what can be done about it. And yes, if, it, if, it's, a, if it's an absolute no-no, um, then yes, you do ring the doctor and say that you need to either prescribe something different or just not prescribe it at all. In, in in some cases at the lower end, it's a highly theoretical risk and it's very unlikely that it will happen. And then in, in some other cases, there is a low but possible risk. Um, and often what we do with that is actually talk to the patient about the, if it's not if it's not a serious risk, you talk to the patient about what the warning signs might be and tell them what to do if it happens rather than going back to the GP. Jacinta Johnson talks about new options for migraine prophylaxis. So a clinical point that I like to make when I get in front of people, because uh, I'm not sure that it's filtered through to all the guidelines yet, is uh, if you've got patients with migraine and they haven't tolerated the standard treatments, uh, there's actually a reasonable um, study looking at candesartan as a prophylactic agent, um, so as effective as propranolol, um, but for a different cohort. So if you don't respond to propranolol, candesartan might be an option, and it doesn't have those side effects that we see with beta blockers around fatigue and um, other issues in young people, which are usually the cohort that um, are suffering from migraine. Carolyn Huxhagen advises that pharmacists need to think like specialists. Probably um, when I became an accredited pharmacist, which was a long journey of learning and um, change how you work. So the clinical um, tip that I got was that I needed to think um, like a doctor, but not just a normal GP, but like a specialist. So when you talk and write a report or phone a a GP, to change how you think through what you want to deliver and what you want to say in how a specialist would talk to a GP. Because in reality, um, what what I was taught was that I you're a specialist. You're, you're a specialist pharmacist giving your opinion and your knowledge to that GP to help the patient. So don't, don't treat yourself as something below, but... Use the terminology and use your pattern of speech and how you you line it out, um, how a specialist would do it. So that was a really important tip because in the beginning of accredited pharmacists, one of the the back comments all the time was, you know, don't 
you know, the GPs would say, just don't recite, you know, MIMS 101 to me because that, you know, it's boring. And also it, a GP wants to read succinct messages of that they can easily read and easily pick up with the patient in front of them and they want it in succinct and informative type. So you had to change how your format of, of thinking and, and writing and, and delivering messages and that was probably my best ever tip because in the beginning days we were, you know, like we always are, you know, pushing the border, pushing out to say we can do this and help you but we had to learn to talk how a GP wanted to be spoken to and yeah and think and act like a specialist is was my best tip. Mark Norton advises to think fast and to think slow. Um, as an academic you can probably expect me to be perhaps more reflective at times than we might see others uh, and that I don't mean to be insulting to my colleagues but um, there was a terrific book called uh, Thinking Fast and Slow and often uh, it was written by a psychologist um, and we, we often will respond immediately, occasionally that's good in a, an emergency situation. However, in a lot of the work that pharmacists do, it's not that urgent that we have to blurt out an answer two seconds after the question's been asked. So I think a, a good tip is to think slowly, stop, uh, listen to the patient, um, and that sort of advice has been given to me uh, multiple times. If we go back to one of your previous questions, um, listen to the, to the patient or listen to the person that's asking the question and just think about it. And if you don't understand it, ask the person to ask the question again that's, that asked you that question. So it's perhaps not a clinical tip uh, necessarily, but I think it's a, a, a good tip. Sandra Minnis talks about the importance of developing your own work structure. So I don't have a lot of experience only being in fourth year pharmacy, but I think one thing that I learnt a little early on in my, I guess, um, part-time work in community and also experience on placement is how important it is as a pharmacist to um, have your own structure and how you go about achieving your goals for the day and how you go about um, uh, managing your workload and when you leave your work or when you leave a job and you pass over to the next pharmacist it's important to always have um, everything clear and concise so that you know if you leave the pharmacist that comes in can take over easily and there's no questions asked and there's that continuity of care um, and that efficiency that allows for um, better medica uh, medication management. So, Chris Campbell talks about a novel way to prevent skin irritation from transdermal patches. So this one was, uh, so you have a patient that's on one of our transdermal patches and you might have a... Um, some skin irritation, not necessarily um, uh, enough to call it, um, say, anaphylaxis or, or severe allergy, but irritation enough that means that they have to stop therapy. Um, and, you know, you run through site rotation, et cetera, et cetera. And we're in a conundrum because we can't use a, a steroid cream because the patch won't stick. So they're using a um, flixotide inhaler prior to using the patch and finding that patient can maintain. And I went, wow, wow, 
I don't know, why did I not think of that back before? That's a fluticasone inhaler, meter dose inhaler. There we go. That was a off-labelled little tidbit of... It's fresh in my mind from last week and I, was, I wish I knew that earlier <laughs> or had thought of that myself. Joyce McSwan reveals the secrets to scrambling pain. There is something interesting um, that is that we, we certainly do in practice and I do it in practice as well, in myself. It's what we call scramble pain. Okay, so to scramble pain, um, you literally use a hot pack and a cold pack. And you apply, not both at once, no, you do one for 20 minutes, then you go cold for 20 minutes. Then you go hot for 20 minutes, then you go cold for 20 minutes. We're used to using one modality only, but then when you – so when you use one modality only, you're either, you know, vasoconstricting or um, dilating, right? So you, you, you're trying to achieve something. So like for an acute injury, you might be going, okay, just strictly cold, right, because that's obviously helping um, um, to reduce not just pain but also the, the pathology of, of why you're using something cold. Heat, on the other hand, you know, if you just use one. But then when you want to confuse the pain and to reduce it um, – as long as this is comfortable, obviously, for the patient, but to scramble pain, because the brain, um, that uses our gait theory, the, the brain's going, oh, oh, what's that? Oh, what's that? So it actually starts to reduce the brain's focus on the perception of pain per se. So you're not really inducing a vasoconstriction or dilation process. You're not wanting to do that right now. You're just wanting to scramble pain. Wow. So would you advise that in acute or chronic or it doesn't matter? It's just... <laughs> Look, usually it is more chronic, chronic pain, where it's it's sort of starting to reach a bit of an intensity level. You're not really wanting to achieve a constriction of, or, or dilation. So that's important. Like you just don't want to do any of those, you know, biological effects. You just simply want to turn down that intensity of pain. So And you want the brain to be quite confused. <laughs> about, um, you know, what it's feeling. So it, it literally is more on intensity level, pain intensity level, where, um, yeah, where it's, it's you're just wanting to scramble it as such. Yeah. So it's an it's a intensity reduction. Yeah. And you do it for like an hour? No, no. I think you do it till when it's comfortable. Okay. Yeah. When either you've had enough or sick of going, you know, to either or, <laughs> microwave or otherwise. Um, but just, just, yeah, just when... It's always got to be in a comfortable level, right? If you start doing it and then it's like, I really don't like this, okay, then you, of course, stop. But if you actually do it and, 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 you know, there is this distraction. So it is a distraction technique, which is not always sustainable. Distraction techniques are not always sustainable, but they're acutely useful sometimes, you know, in terms of, um, yeah, if it means one less endone (laughs) before you look for evaluating whether you need the endone or not, then it's really useful. Yeah, it's just a useful little tool. Yeah. Kay Dunkley shares a method for helping children swallow tablets. Okay, clinical tips. Well, that's a a broad topic. And certainly um, what I've found with clinical tips is I've often learned them from other people and sometimes that might be nursing staff or medical staff, but also the patients themselves. But the one that 
I suppose has been very valuable to me is helping young children learn how to swallow tablets and um, the secret is that you place a tablet to the front of the mouth and you give them a big cup of water with a straw and you just let them suck that water in and keep swallowing and the tablet will go down and I think that's really useful because often when children get to the ages of around uh, 8 to 12 it can be difficult to always dose them with liquid medicines and it may be easier in fact to give them uh, hard formulations like tablets or capsules and teaching them how to swallow those without gagging is really important and uh, the other one is is one from my paediatric days is administering medication to little babies and the nurses at the hospital would always put the medication into um, a teat and let the baby suck it in and they also advised me that you never squirt the syringe straight into their mouth because if you do that they will actually choke and you actually have to let them suck on if you're going to administer it from the syringe directly that you let them suck on that syringe and you gradually push a little bit in at a time and that way the medicine goes down without the baby choking so they were just handy paediatric tips that I learnt along the way and as I said the tips come from all sorts of different sources. Shane Jackson notes the importance of open questions in establishing trust. Yes, I think uh, one of the things that I do that might be a little bit unique in my pharmacies and uh, when I do any sort of teaching, especially with um, newer pharmacists or students, is to frame the conversation in the positive to start with. So an example of that is sometimes people come into the pharmacy and you know they might ask for hay fever medicine or um, you know something for pain relief. And I know that the, sometimes the classic questions that are asked are, have you had that before? And I try to frame it a little bit differently and I'll say, so how is your hay fever? Or how is your pain? And uh, it's interesting when you look at people um, when you ask that question because they, you can see in their eyes and by their body language that often they actually haven't been asked that question before. And it really sets the frame for a really positive dialogue um, about the person's condition that they're trying to self-manage or uh, manage in, in conjunction with their other health professionals. Um, so the example about the pain, they'll say, well, no, my pain's not very good. And so you can, you then have a sequence of questions, well, tell me why your pain's not very good, you know, what type of pain. It really sets the frame of uh, an open question. Uh, and... Uh, about a week ago, I did a, a Facebook Live event with Chronic Pain Australia, uh, and one of the f feedback that came through their patient surveys that they did, or consumer surveys that they did, was, don't ask me 50 million questions from the patients. And I don't, I don't think the questions are actually the issue, it's how the questions are framed. And so, like I said, it's just about framing it in the positive, and I'm actually, you know, the medicine might be, well be a byproduct of our conversation, but I'm interested in how your pain is or how your medical condition is and how I might be able to help that. And the same goes, you know, if somebody comes in for a prescription for metformin or anything like that, it's not how's this medicine going, it's how's your diabetes. And, and so that, that's probably the, the, the frame within which I approach most things. It's how are you going, right? And you might focus on a... On a 
a specific chronic medical condition, or but it's it's just that question, which is less of a question around, um, you know, have you had that before, and do you know what you're doing, and you know, don't take any more than eight a day. That sort of it's it's very much framed around the the person, and often those interactions are, are much more um, effective and and efficient, to be frank, from a from a time point of view, because you get to the heart of the issue. And what that does is it, it actually establishes the ongoing relationship so that when that person comes in the next time to your pharmacy, whether it be you or anybody else, if you have that philosophy, is that they're more likely to ask a proactive question, not can I have Nurofen or Panadol, oh, I need something for pain. So they'll frame it that way. They're actually asking your advice, not asking you for a product. It may well be the product that, you, that they have. Chris Freeman advises that we should look for common explanations for symptoms or problems before turning to those that are rare or exotic. This is in the context of a clinical situation uh, where you, there might be some uncertainty about what is, you're being presented with. So that might be, for example, uh, a potential differential diagnosis that you're trying to make for a minor ailment in the community pharmacy. It might be trying to determine what the cause of a drug-related problem uh, is and this is advice that I give um, pharmacists that I mentor in doing medicine reviews or interns that I've supervised is um, when you hear hooves think horses not unicorns and uh, what that basically means is think of the common things first uh, and then think of the rarer things secondary and sometimes uh, and I teach a lot of medical students uh, up in Queensland uh, and it's easy for um, pharmacists I think Uh, to grasp to those rare things first because that's what we're drilled on in pharmacy schools. It's the rhabdomyolysis, it's the osteonecrosis of the jaw. Those things are typically actually quite rare, but we tend to jump to them first. And so I think when you've got a patient in front of you or you're being asked for advice and it's around deciding whether something's a drug-related problem or a differential diagnosis, uh, consider the common things first, and uh, once you rule those out, then think of those rare, rarer things later on. Yeah, and sometimes it's okay. <laughs> You're allowed to have a triple whammy. Or, or, or what the, the, the students come out with, with a double whammy. Well, but if you know, you're a you know, uh, 37-year-old. I was about to tell you what your age was, but uh, 39. Um, uh, and, you, and you happen to be on those things, and, you, and you've got intact kidney function. For a short period of time, that tends to be okay. Uh, If you're a 95-year-old lady who's got impaired kidney function, who's a week out from uh, falling off the perch, doing that things will make you fall off the perch a little (laughs) bit quicker. So, um, yeah, yeah. I I just get a bit frustrated because, and I think it's partly how we're educated, um, is that we just, we jump to the red flag, high-risk stuff first, which in some ways is good but can make us look silly because it can often be a more common problem uh, that we've gone off on this weird tangent on because we've been directed down that way. Part of the, the, what, the fix for that is actually when we are teaching those things is actually to describe the instance of, of, of those things actually occurring. So if something happens 90% of the time, something else happens 10% of the time and you're presented with a problem where either of those things could happen... You know, you're going to, you'd be banking your house on the 90% stuff, right? <laughs> you know, you might be wrong 10% of the time, um, but you're going to be right nine out of ten times. So, 
We hope you have enjoyed this episode of the AJP podcast. If you have any comments, questions, or suggestions about this episode, please visit the AJP forum at ajp.com.au and join the conversation. If you have any suggestions for future topics or would like to participate in the podcast, please send an email to ajppodcast at appco.com.au or follow us on Twitter at AJP Podcast.